pay close attention. This is God's holy word. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word, for its preservation, for its translation, for its communication to us now. Thank you for speaking to us today through your word. It is an unbelievable blessing. And today we do indeed give you thanks for your word. And we ask you that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might hear it and receive it and understand it and learn from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, last week I began to reintroduce the book of Revelation so that we could pick up where we left off last March. However, I uh, only made it about halfway through my plan last week. I wanted to recap a few of the major themes and then walk through the first seven chapters, and that was quite an ambitious plan for last Sunday. So we made it through the themes, and we didn't make it through the first seven chapters. I wanted to pick up with chapter eight today, so here's, here's the plan for today. I would like to go ahead and walk you back through the first seven chapters of Revelation so that you know uh, and you're caught up with where we find ourselves in chapter 8. And then I just want to barely dip our toe into chapter 8 today. And hopefully we'll complete our mission today that I failed to complete last week. Remember, Revelation is an unveiling of Christ. It is a revealing. It's not a, a, an obscuring. It's not a concealing of anything. Uh, it's, it's an unveiling, it's an uncovering, a revealing of Christ. And by an extension of that, as an extension of, of this unveiling of Christ, we get an unveiling of heaven. We get to peek behind the curtain into the throne room of heaven, and we see how things run in God's throne room. Heaven is a blueprint for earth. We want and we pray for God's will to be done on earth just as it is in heaven. We want heaven's priorities to be earth's priorities. We want heaven's operations to become earth's operations. So revelation opens up heaven for us so that we can see how that works and so we can apply it, so we can follow the blueprint. We saw last week and remembered that Revelation is a symbolic book. It's communicated in the language of symbol, and it's communicated in the language of the Bible's symbols. So we're not importing our own symbols into it, but we're understanding the symbolic language of Scripture, and we're depending on those to interpret Revelation. It is an intertextual book, so it draws from the whole Bible. There are so many hundreds of Old Testament references throughout the book of Revelation. We need to know what those are. And so Revelation is a commentary on all of Scripture. It is a, a practical book, so it's not this mixed bag of arcane symbols that we can't sort through and can't figure out. It's very practical, as we'll see even today. Uh, there are practical applications. It is a liturgical book, so it shows us heaven's worship service. It, it shows us how things run and what order in heaven so that we can model that in our worship. And it is a Christological book. It is all about Christ. It shows us Jesus as a mighty warrior riding out to conquer the nations and vanquish all evil. So that's what we covered last week. Now let's take a brisk walk through the first seven chapters 
and recall what we've studied so far. Chapter 1 begins with the Apostle John, the beloved Apostle, Jesus' friend, John. He's on the Isle of Patmos, just off the coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So he's in the, in, in the Mediterranean Sea, near the Aegean Sea. And it's implied that John has been exiled to this island as persecution for preaching the gospel. Rome, at this period of history, doesn't know quite what to do with the church. It's a, a weird sect of the, the Jews, it's assumed. And, and so the, the response of Rome to the church comes in various, there's not one standard application, even through the first uh, three centuries of, of the church, and they're dealing with Rome. There's not a standard response all the time from Rome. So just because of the preaching of the gospel ends up exiled. That's his punishment. Here on this island, on the Lord, and he hears a loud voice, like the voice uh, or the blast of a trumpet. He hears a blast of a trumpet, a voice speaking. It's the Lord Jesus speaking and revealing himself to John. So the book opens with this unveiling of Jesus. And you see him there in chapter one as this glorious powerful, reigning, majestic king who is preeminent over everything. It's a clear image that Jesus is presently glorified and he's ruling over history from heaven. When we see him, he's clothed in white with sun and fire and stars and bronze. He's carrying a sword. He's the king and he's the captain of all the cosmos. Everything that is created is at his command and under his rule and authority. He is the first and the last. He is the one who holds everything together. Now, by implication, and the message is very clear, when Jesus appears this way, it's, it's, it's evident that Jesus is making a pronouncement, I am king and nobody else is. I am king and Caesar is not. This is as much a theological statement as it is a political statement about who really is ruling things, who is the king of the cosmos. And the trajectory of this book is that he's preparing a bride to be just like him in glory and majesty. So we see his glory and majesty revealed, and then we find out he's preparing his bride to look like him. Everything that you see in the appearance of Jesus also becomes true of the church. As he crowns her, as he honors her, as he sets her up as an authority to rule the cosmos by his side, as, as, the, as, as his judge of the earth, her eyes are flames of fire. She speaks with the voice of many waters. Her tongue is a sword. Her feet are like bronze. He becomes one flesh with her. So she has part in his exaltation and rule. And so one of the threads of Revelation is his preparation of his bride to rule alongside of him. Because she's the bride of the king, she shares in his splendor, she shares in his rule. So that's chapter one. We open with this glorious picture of the image of the Lord Jesus. Then over the next two chapters, chapters two and three, this mighty Jesus turns to his churches in Asia Minor and he visits them with encouragement and he tells them to stand fast against their foes. Stand with me against your enemies. He also comes to correct them. He comes to call them to repentance in all those areas where they'd fallen under temptation, where they'd fallen under the influence of the pagan temples and under the worship of Caesar. 
And this instruction to his churches comes in seven letters, seven letters to seven pastors of seven churches in seven ancient cities. So this, this book is directed from the very beginning to a specific time and place in history to churches and Christians living in a real geographical place. This is not uh, just a uh, kind of a timeless bag of, of symbols that we pick through and we sort through and we say, oh, this looks like this and this looks like this other thing. This is communicated to a specific people in a specific time in history. And so as he visits these churches and he, and he sends them these letters, they're uh, you, you can start to pick up on a uh, on a narrative that runs through these seven letters. There are historical references in these seven letters that map out the whole history of God's people up to that time. We saw this when we studied this back in January or February, but I'll I'll remind you quickly of it. The letter of Ephesus starts out in the garden. There's a tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God referenced in the letter to Ephesians. We start in the garden with Ephesus and then Smyrna puts us in the time of the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. There are references to prison and testing and the result is a crown. Well, that's, that's a very clear recollection of Joseph's story. And then we move to Pergamos and Pergamos has references to the wilderness wandering times and, and the Exodus. There are direct references in the letter to Pergamos to manna, to uh, Balaam and, and Balak, to the high priest's breastplate. All of these Exodus references are in, in the letter to Pergamos. Thyatira takes us to the kingdom age with commentary on God's king, with a reference to Jezebel who came around in the time of the kings. Sardis has echoes of the Babylonian captivity. In Sardis, there's a faithful remnant who need to hold out and strengthen what remains. Philadelphia is, is, is full of references to the post-exilic, the time after the Babylonian captivity, with references to a new temple and a new city. Remember, that's what Ezra and Nehemiah were all about, building the temple and, the, and rebuilding the city. And finally, Laodicea describes Israel in the first century as wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is the generation that says we have no king but Caesar. This is the, this is the generation that says of Jesus, crucify him. We don't, we don't need him. He's not our savior. And so they're about to be cast out. So working from Ephesus to Laodicea, you have seven panels. You have seven snapshots of Israel's history up to this point, all the way up to the first century, all the way up to the time of Jesus. Now you could also pull out these various panels and say, not only are these descriptions and instructions to Israel in various times of their history and their spiritual state, but you could also apply it to the church, it's ages and stages of her history. And you might ask, what is today like? Are we living in more of a Thyatira type of age or more like a Sardis type of age? You can look at these and think, well, if, if our situation is more like Sardis or Smyrna, then here's the instruction and here's what we need to pay attention to. So it's helpful, but it's an outline of, of history up to this point, which sets us up for a new chapter, the emergence of the new world, a new chapter, a new creation as the old creation of the old covenant is dissolved. So that takes us through chapter three, these letters to the churches. And then chapter four, which we read just briefly last week, John is invited up into heaven to watch from heaven's perspective how things are about to unfold. Here, 
uh, we see God the Father sitting on a throne surrounded by a rainbow, which is one of my favorite images in the book of Revelation. The other one we're going to get to in chapter 8, but this is one of my favorite images. God's throne is surrounded by a rainbow, which is a sign of his promises to his people. Remember the rainbow is a reminder for God when he sets it up with Noah. It's, it's sure Noah looks at it and he remembers God's covenant, but God sets this up as my memorial. And now when we look into God's throne room, we see God's throne is surrounded by the rainbow so that every direction that God looks in 360 degrees, every direction that God looks, he looks through the memorial of his covenant promises. He looks at you through his covenant promises. He views the world through his covenant. Everywhere he looks, he looks at us through his mercies and his promises. We also see him surrounded by angels and cherubim who lead the heavenly orchestras and the choirs worship in heaven. We find out is this great dialogue, like this drama where God does a thing and the choirs respond and God does something else and the choirs respond. And we try to imitate that in worship where we do a thing and the choir responds and we do another thing and the choir responds. You're forgiven of your sins and you respond in, in praise. That's, that's what we're imitating. And uh, God, God says a thing and does a thing and the, the inhabitants of heaven break out in praise. We see that in chapter four. In chapter five, a great book is presented. Now, books in the first century were scrolls. And so it's a long scroll uh, that, that you, you roll out and you uh, read. But scrolls, books were sealed with wax, uh, especially if there was important information that you were passing along. This scroll has seven seals on it, seven, uh, seven clasps, uh, seven latches, seven wax seals. And uh, the, the, this is the book that contains the judgments against Israel for breaking God's covenant. This, this is the book that contains the curses for, for sins against the covenant, as is clearly laid out in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And the seals are what hold back the judgments. In chapter 6, then, so in chapter 5, the book is presented. In chapter 6, we find out that the time is up for Israel, and those judgments are unleashed. One by one, those seals are broken. And we see all of the same things that Jesus said was going to happen in that generation. In Matthew 24, in Mark 13, in Luke 21, Jesus at the Olivet Discourse, when uh, his, his apostles say, uh, when, when are these things going to take place? When Jesus says, you see the temple, not one stone is going to be left. And, Jesus, and, and the apostles say, when? When is this going to happen? And then Jesus starts detailing the events that are about to unfold in that generation. He says, this generation will not pass until all of these things have taken place. And what Jesus gives in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21 is a list of the signs of the end that will take place in that generation. So there's wars, there's strife between nations, there's famine, there's pestilence, there's persecutions, earthquakes, political collapse. The book now in Revelation is opened and all of the curses of the covenant start spilling out. All the curses for covenant breaking start spilling out as these seals are broken. All the things God said would happen way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. All those things 
begin to take place because they've rejected his covenant. I want to I run back to Deuteronomy 28 uh, and just read a part of it. The whole chapter is full of this very same language that you see in Matthew 24 and Revelation, same language. But, but listen to what God said in Deuteronomy. After he gave them his covenant, here's what he said. Here's what's going to happen if you reject my covenant. He says, Yahweh will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. Yahweh will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. Yahweh will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching and with terror. They shall pursue you until you perish. And your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. Yahweh will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Yahweh will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. And if any part of that sounds like yesterday's headlines to you, it's because this is the same litany of curses that happen to any people who reject God's covenant, any people who are in covenant with God that then walk away and reject God's law. You reject law, you reject life. Disobedience to the covenant is its own curse. And, and, and in disobedience to God's law, there's no stability, there's no order, there's only unraveling. God gives us his law and requires that we keep it, not just because he likes giving orders. It's not just that he likes bossing us around and telling people what to do, and he wants to keep people from having fun. No, but because his law is the way of life and blessing and peace. That's the only way to be truly and fully human. So broken covenant comes with judgment, and that's what is happening as these seals are broken. However, in the midst of judgment, there is always mercy. This is God's way of doing things. Adam and Eve fall, but even in the midst of the fall, he gives them the promise of the future savior. Centuries later, he floods the world, but he provides a way out for anyone who joins themselves with Noah. The angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah to inspect the city and they seal Lot and he escapes with his two daughters. He sends plagues on Egypt, but he spares anyone who puts the sign of the, of the blood over their door. So here the same thing is going to happen. Even though these seals are being broken and judgments are falling out, in chapter 7, here in the midst of judgment, the angel comes with the seal of the living God and he marks the saints on their foreheads. These are the members of the old covenant people, old Israel, who will join themselves to the new Noah, to the new Mo Moses, to Jesus, and they will be delivered through the judgment because his blood is over their doors, so to speak. And so in chapter 7, there's a census. There is a numbering of all those who are marked, all those who will make the transition from the old world to the new world, all, the, all those of the 12 tribes who are coming over into the new world of the new covenant. We find that there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, 144,000 in all. He seals his people out of old Israel. He puts his name on their foreheads. 
And now the covenant promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these promises are all intact. All these promises are now going to be received into the church and received through the church. But, but here's the family tree. Here's the connection to the old covenant. The connection between the old covenant and the new are these 144,000 saints who come over into the church. And while the judgment is going to be poured out on the idolaters, a judgment's going to be poured out on the apostates of the old covenant, those who said, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. Though judgment is going to fall on them, the church is safe. The church is complete. The church is sealed and saved. And she's arrayed here in chapter 7 like an army. The 144,000 are not all that the Lord Jesus has in the world. They're accompanied by a great multitude. If you have your Bible open, you're following with me. Look at uh, verse 9 of chapter 7. 7, 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. See, this isn't an addition to the 144,000. A great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a vision of all the families of the earth who join the Jewish remnant who are in union with Jesus and who worship before his throne. They are about to go through great tribulation. They are about to go through severe turmoil and persecution as Jerusalem collapses, as Rome starts to figure out what to do with the church and the Roman emperors are stirred up against the church. They're about to go through great tribulation, but they're delivered through persecution to the feet of Jesus. Verse 13, and one of the elders answered saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." You see why this book is such a comfort to the persecuted church and has been a comfort to persecuted Christians throughout the centuries because of these practical promises. There is great hope when you get heaven's perspective on what's going on on earth. And so the key to understanding this book is not that we try to match up figures and events of revelation with modern or future events or personalities, or technologies. That's not the purpose of this book, but that we read it as communicated in the context that it was communicated to the first audience. These people who are facing great tribulation, they are facing the dissolution of the old world. And to these people who are standing on this precipice of history, Jesus says, your world is being turned upside down. In the midst of turmoil, don't lose the plot. Don't start to believe that you're just barreling through time and, 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 and history is this, this great snowball of unmitigated disaster and there's no author and there's no finisher of history. Don't begin to believe that your lives and the events around your lives are meaningless or purposeless and have no focus and have no purpose. If you are looking at only the information you have on earth, you're getting only half the picture. Rather, the message of Revelation is to these saints, look here. Look at heaven's blueprint. 
See how things run in heaven. Jesus is the man who has been exalted and crowned king over all creation. And now he rides out as a conqueror to vanquish all his enemies. And the response to everything that God says and does is gratitude and glory and praise. That's how things run on, on, on heaven's terms. That's how things must run on earth. That when God does a thing, we respond in gratitude and praise. God's servants respond with joyful obedience and not fear when they're standing on the precipice of history and it looks like everything's collapsing around them. You get heaven's perspective and you see, oh yeah, he's, he's doing this and it's for his glory and for our blessing. Now, the preservation of this 144,000 happens after the sixth seal that is broken on the scroll. And now we've got a few minutes to make some headway. And I'm going to give you something new today that we haven't studied before. So let's look at the breaking of the seventh seal and, and, and the final seal on the scroll, which we read just a minute ago. I'm going to read it again. Chapter eight. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Who's he? Who's breaking these seals? Well, it's the lamb. He's the only one worthy to take up the scroll because he's the only one who's kept the covenant perfectly. He's the only man who has obeyed God's law completely without fail. And so he's the one who can take up the scroll and begin to open it. Jesus is the lamb. Uh, uh, who, he's, he's identified as the lamb who is taking up the scroll. All of these things that have happened so far are the preliminaries to reading the book. See, we haven't even started reading the book yet. We've just, we've just started popping the seals. The contents of the book are then going to be heralded by seven trumpeting angels, and then they're going to be applied by seven bowls, which are poured out. But we'll get to all of that. But just now, we're getting into position. We're opening the last clasp, the last fastener on the scroll. And when that seventh seal is broken on the scroll, there is silence in heaven for half an hour. Okay, remember where we are in the liturgy as, as Revelation is this big heavenly worship service, what's happened so far? Well, we've been called to worship. We have dealt with our sins. We've confessed our sins. We dealt with those with the seven churches. We've ascended into the heavenlies. We've responded with prayers and praise. And now we're in the section of the liturgy. We're in the section of the worship service where the book is being opened. To this point, we've been doing a lot of talking. We've been doing a lot of singing, a lot of speaking. We, the worshipers. We're going to speak again. We're going to praise and praise some more. But right now in the middle, as the book is finally opened, God is going to speak. God is going to act and work. God's acts are going to be sounded out. And as he speaks his voice like a trumpet through the trumpeting angels, his word is going to be heard. The choir doesn't start back up again until the seventh trumpet is blown. For the next seven trumpets, the next seven big acts in history, the choirs are silent while God speaks, while God's trumpets are blown. For now, God has the floor. He has the mic. He has the center stage. Now, when God's book is opened and about to be read, what is the appropriate response? When God's book is opened and it's being read, what do we do? shut up, right? You be silent. It's time to be silent. When God is speaking, what are we doing? Not speaking, right? When God is speaking, put your hand over your mouth. In the Exodus, when, when Pharaoh's army 
is thundering down on the Israelites and they're standing on the banks of the Red Sea. Moses says what? He says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of Yahweh. Yahweh shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Now's not the time to be talking. Stand and watch what Yahweh is about to do for you. Stand still, be quiet and watch the mighty acts of God. Habakkuk 2.20 Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Yahweh's about to speak through Habakkuk. Yahweh uh, is about to, uh, to give his pronouncements. So what do we do? Keep silence. It's time to be quiet. Zephaniah 1.7, hold your peace in the presence of Master Yahweh for the day of Yahweh is at hand. And later Zephaniah says, be silent all flesh before Yahweh for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. When God is about to speak and when God is about to act on our behalf, the proper posture is silence. We demonstrate that in worship. When the book is opened and read, we demonstrate a posture of attention. We demonstrate a posture of of silence and listening by paying attention and coming to attention. When God's word is open and being read, it's not time for a potty break. This this is not a commercial break. You know, when John stands up and he reads the scripture readings every Lord's Day, it's not time to get a a drink of water. It's not time to start a side conversation. I'll often say, and I did this morning too, I'll often say when I'm reading scripture, I'll say, pay close attention. This is God's holy word. I just want to remind everybody that what's about to be said is God's words, not mine. And I'll often say at the end, I'll say, thus far the reading of God's word. Right now, Duane is talking. Right now, I hope Dwayne is saying some true things. I hope Dwayne is saying some helpful things. I hope Dwayne isn't putting you to sleep, but sometimes that happens too. But when God is speaking, it's different than when Dwayne is speaking, right? And we make a difference between those things by paying special attention and coming to attention when God's word is being read. So, so when God is speaking, we cultivate a holy reverence and fear. We take it seriously and we teach our children to do so, that when this book is open and this book is read out loud, it's not time to start wandering around the room, right? It's, it's time to listen. Well, the book is open now in heaven and there's silence in heaven for half an hour. What do you do with that? What's half an hour about? Various scholars have worked to understand why there's silence for half an hour. We hear, well, the sermon's only supposed to last half an hour. That's what it's all about, right? That's, um, <laughs> there you go. How much time I got? I got five minutes. Okay. Um, why half an hour? We hear about uh, the hour of judgment. We hear a lot about that, or the hour of persecution in the scriptures. Jesus talks about his trial as the coming hour of suffering, or he tells his mom, it's not my hour yet. My hour is not yet come. We get a lot of hours in the Bible, but this is the only time where we get half an hour. One answer might be found in looking at what the angel does in that half an hour. We're about to read what the angel does, but the angel's duties have to do with the heavenly altar of incense. So one explanation is that this is about the length of time that it took the priest to offer incense on the earthly altar of incense in the tabernacle or later the temple. Let's remember what that ceremony or that ritual was all about. After the sin offering, the priest takes coals off the altar. He takes a handful of incense and he goes behind the veil into the holy place while the people stand outside in silent prayer, he goes in and he burns up, he pours the coals out of the censer. A censer is a bronze container for carrying hot coals. Um, 
you don't hold them in your hand. You gotta have something to hold them in. And a, and a sensor is a bronze container for the carrying of live hot coals. So he takes, he takes the coals in a sensor from off the altar, he takes them behind the veil, and he burns up a handful of incense on the altar of incense while the room fills with the smoke and all of that incense is burned up. And that represents the prayers of the people of the, of the, of a sweet smelling incense, the sweet smelling savor before God. That's what that, that, uh, um, that liturgy of, of incense does. Remember in Luke one, this is why I love having a church that, um, reads the Bible. And I know you read the Bible, so I don't have to go back there and read it again. But remember Luke one, Zechariah, uh, is doing this very thing when he gets the promise of a son from Gabriel, right? Luke, I'm sorry, Luke tells us that Zechariah goes in and he offers the uh, offering of incense and Zechariah is in there in a room all by himself, full of smoke, when the angel Gabriel appears next to the altar of incense and that's where Gabriel says, I've heard your prayer, you will have a son. So it's assumed that this didn't ordinarily take a long time. You waited there until the incense was burned up while the people prayed outside. But remember, Zechariah comes outside and everybody wonders what he's been up to. He says, where, what have you been? That took a long time. <laughs> what took so long? And then he's quiet and he, he's silent because he's mute and he can't say anything about what happened. So we assume that there was a usual amount of time that it took to burn up incense. And I wonder if this is what this half hour is referring to. It's the only half hour that I can find in the Bible. And because of what the angel is doing, it seems to be a reference to this um, incense liturgy or this incense ritual that the priest did. So let's, let's read what the angel does. Verse two. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. God's messengers are about to trumpet out the contents of the book as it is read. Verse three. Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So this angel has much incense. The priest would take uh, uh, incense in his hand, but this is much incense. This is more than a handful, we can assume. This is enough to amount to all the prayers of all the saints that have been assembled before the throne and under the altar. Remember, we read about the martyrs who've been crying uh, under the altar of God, oh, how long, O oh Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth, those prayers that they've been praying day and night. The angel collects those prayers into the heavenly altar of incense, just as the priest on earth did. Now, let's stop real quick and say, why did the priest on earth do these things? Why did God direct the priest on earth to do these various rituals and motions and things? Well, it's because the, that's what the angels are doing. The priest is imitating the angels. The priest is dressed like an angel. He moves around in the temple like an angel. Uh, he even has wings on his garments. And even all of Israel, we're supposed to have four wings, four tassels on the edge of their garments to remind them that they are priests in the earth. They are also angels. They are God's messengers as they move around through the earth. And now it means the priesthood of all believers means that we are now moving through the earth as God's messengers. We're offering living sacrifices to God, but, but still in various ways, we're imitating the worship of heaven and of the angels. We are his messengers. So here's the image. This is what the angel is doing. The angel is doing this heavenly uh, incense ritual. And then verse four, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, 
filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Remember I said one of my favorite images in the book of Revelation is the throne of God surrounded by the rainbow. This is my second uh, favorite, not in rank, but also another favorite image in the book of Revelation. Do you catch what happened here? The prayers of the saints of God come up before the throne of God, mingled with incense. And the response to those prayers that God smells, that he takes in the response to those prayers, the answer to those prayers is that the angel once again fills the censer full of coals from the altar and flings them to the earth where there is noise and thunder and lightning and earthquakes. Do you see what happened? The prayers of the saints go up and the fire comes down. I want to impress that image on you, especially if you're a child, because I want you to know what we're doing here. Children, our prayers go up and what comes down? Fire. Yeah, you can say that. You can speak. (laughs) The prayers go up and the fire comes down, right? That's what happens. Fire is being poured out from heaven and it's often associated with judgment, right? But it's also a symbol of blessing, a sign of blessing. The day of Pentecost, fire came down from heaven and lit on the heads of the um, uh, uh, lights like fire, lit on the heads of the uh, apostles. Fire lit the altar at the tabernacle. Fire lit uh, Elijah's altar in the showdown with the prophets of of Baal. Uh, Light and fire from heaven poured out on the earth changes things. It transforms the earth. It shakes things up. And here we see heaven's perspective on what happens when God's people gather to pray. The prayers go up and God's fire comes down from his altar. God rains down heavenly fire in response to the worship of his people, which means there is an intimate connection between the worship of God's people, also known as the liturgy, of the church. There is an intimate connection between the liturgy of the church and God's mighty acts in history. Liturgy changes history. Worship changes the world. God has placed on his people the high calling of being priests in the world to assemble in his presence, to hear his words, to sing his words, the Psalms, to eat real bread and drink real wine in his presence, to lift up our supplications and prayers and petitions for him to change the world. And if the world is falling apart around us, then we have to ask, is the church being derelict in her duty? Is she living up to her calling as priests to pray on behalf of the world, to ask God to change things, to ask God to pour out fire from heaven, to shake things up, to purify, to anoint, to empower? Because over and over in the scriptures, we see this connection that when the worshiping assembly of God's people call upon the Lord, the world is visited by his perfect judgments. Human history is directed from the altar of incense where the prayers of the saints are collected. I just want to show you one place on this very shortly and uh, very quickly. Psalm 18, where you see this uh, very same thing happen. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry came before him even to his ears. Then what happens? My, My prayer has gone up to God's temple 
he hears it. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. Yahweh thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at your rebuke, O Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. What did David pray there? My prayers went up and what came down? Fire from God's altar, from God's throne came down. Do you see why it is so important that we do not casually set aside the weekly gathering of God's people on the day of the Lord? You see why we don't accept substitutes. It's why we don't put up with a lot of distractions. We aren't here to be entertained. We're not here to play games. We don't take lightly our calling as priests and the distinct importance of the work of worship that it has in the world. It is our duty to worship and to offer up prayers to God that the world cannot and will not in their deafness and their blindness. It is our duty to come before God in place of a world that ignores his call to worship. We confess our sins and we uh, confess the sins of the world on behalf of a people who are hardened to their sins. We assemble to hear God's word as priests in the place of a world that is ignorant of what God says. We come to the table. The whole world is invited to this table, but you come, you come and you gather at this table to eat with Jesus and to maintain our communion and fellowship with him on behalf of a world that stiff arms and ignores his invitations. We are blessed then, and we're sent back out into a world that hates now this world, even though it doesn't know it, this world is being changed hour by hour, week by week, by the faithful who appear before God's throne. You look at the world, and you read the newspaper, and you look at the internet, and you say, it ain't happening. I don't see it. This is nuts. This isn't happening. But you get heaven's perspective, and you see the prayers going up, and you see the fire coming down. You see the prayers going up, and you see the fire coming down. You have to remember that. You have to keep that before you, that that's what is happening, that we pray and our prayers are enhanced, mixed with the incense of the Holy Spirit, elevated by the in intercession of Jesus. God hears, and the angel throw fire, uh, throws fire to the earth. And knowing that this is what happens when God's people gather to pray means that we should never take this for granted that we should never think this is unimportant or that there are any other higher priorities in all the earth because there are not. There is no higher priority than coming into God's presence to meet with him, to bring our petitions and to renew our covenant with him. When we do that, we're following heaven's blueprint. We're on heaven's plan. We're seeing God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers today are being collected by the angel with the heavenly incense. And now as we pray, as we pray week by week, Lord, please shut down the abortion industry. Please save innocent lives. 
Please turn mothers and fathers from this terrible choice and this terrible decision. Lord, shut down the endless violence and the terror and the tyranny and shut down unjust wars. Lord, stop all unbelief and all wickedness. Lord, heal our marriages. Lord, save our children. Lord, preserve our work. Lord, hold our nation together. We pray and we pray and we pray and we pray without ceasing. We worship faithfully. And then when that censer is full and God says it's time, that censer is flung to the earth and the world is changed. That's heaven's perspective. And that's the perspective we must keep. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray right now, even acknowledging what you have shown us in heaven, what happens when we pray. And so our prayer right now is that you would impress these things upon our heart and give us this image, this vision of what you are doing in the heavenlies when your people gather to worship so that we may never take it lightly, so that we may never disregard it or discount it, but to come into your presence dutifully, faithfully as your priests in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.